Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We've only done 60 episodes. Rolling, take one. I don't know. I thought we like got to 100 by now. It seems like an eternity. Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this unique little episode, we've got a couple of new correspondents, Sarah Murphy and Charlie Chucks Camigula. We'll also be talking about W.E.B. Du Bois and hundreds of photos of black Americans, which he presented at the 1900 World's Fair. As usual, there's the answer machine question and a couple of zine reviews and uh, some other stuff. But first, Vanya, how the hell are you? Ooh, well, yeah. uh, you guys probably heard that I was a little bit under the weather. You, you know Just you recorded to let you go- a dev party. Do you remember yeah. that? Do you remember recording it, that? I do. Okay. I do. It was. I. It felt like a fever dream, but no, I, I do remember. I am still testing positive, so I am a carrier of COVID forever now. I'm hoping... <laughs> that I'm negative soon uh, because I would like to leave my motherfucking house. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice? Going crazy. (laughs) Um, Crazy thing. I was checking the CDC website and the guidelines have changed and it's kind of funny because they're telling me I could have basically went back to work like five days ago. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a get back to work kind of uh, message they're bringing. Oh yeah, completely different than like the beginning of uh, this whole disaster. <laughs> uh, so I'm feeling weird, not like normally how I feel. Uh, I feel even weirder. So I'm not sure. Is like a weird <laughs> kind of weird? It is. It's a weird kind of weird. I don't know. I just don't feel like myself yet. Can you still taste and smell and all of that? Yes. Okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get the. The, my, my dad, I, my dad called and he's like, oh, you're probably like lost a bunch of weight for being sick. And I was like, no, I'm probably like the only case that like gained weight somehow. <laughs> like I was the only person with COVID that like gained like 20 pounds, I'm sure. <laughs> Cause that's just how my life works. Moving forward. I have a couple things that I have done or am doing per this episode, I guess the pop-up shop, which was on April 9th, uh, was hopefully a success. I got a bunch of fun stuff that I was selling prints and cyanotypes and hopefully portraits. And I have a little bit of bad news. I am selling my little teardrop, or it's not really a teardrop. It's like a tin can. It's a Cardinal, actually, 1973 Cardinal uh, trailer that I converted into my dark room that I still haven't finished because of how things have been going with the pandemic and then also with war. We're having a really hard time at work kind of just getting by. <laughs> everything is going up. The cost of everything. Our rent went up. Our shop rent went up. <laughs> everything is expensive. It's super hard right now. I, I just don't really care about material things to a certain extent. And I know that I am relentless and I will get another trailer eventually. So I pulled the sink out. I still have it. I'm not going to be using it for a while. So if anybody wants to borrow it for a while, <laughs> they can because it's fucking huge. <laughs> Trying to borrow a sink? 
if you want to borrow a giant darkroom sink, come and pick it up. So yeah, no darkroom right now. I am, I did just purchase a uh, darkroom grow, like basically it's like a grow tent oh, yeah. uh, for like growing plants indoors. People have been using just, those for darkrooms for a while, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I got a little kind of like standing one. I think it's about four feet, four feet by four feet by, I don't know, tall enough to fit me in there. I'll be able to like walk in, stand in there, and I'm going to just use that to pour plates right now. Oh, I'm going to cool. just focus on learning the chemistry, pouring plates. I've been having so much fun doing it. Like I, I, It's unfortunate about the dark room, but again, I'm it'll be back. I'm not too worried about it. It'll come back. It always comes back. It does. So yeah. that's basically it. I have. I don't know how I talk so much. Because I've literally been home this yeah, whole time. Yeah, you have doing... way more to share than I do. And you're <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> well, the first day that I got better, I sent Eric pictures of like the dark room completely stripped apart. I was like, I took the whole thing apart. <laughs> like a yeah, crazy you person. Felt better. You, you still, I mean, you're still under the weather a bit, but you did, get, you got a lot better real quick. And then you did a bunch of stuff. Um, and, oh yeah, and now you're you're still you're still testing positive. That sucks, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> Ugh, gosh. Okay, Eric. Let's let's hear what you. Ha- how was Eastern Washington this weekend? Well, Eastern Washington was. I had a lovely hike. I was talking a little bit to Liz Potter, who we had on last episode. Well, she doesn't use satellite imagery or GPS or anything that like that when she's in the field. She just uses old maps and, and her wits. And, Amazing. And that's great. I use satellite imagery and GPS. And so we were talking and she was trying to find, you know, she, she tried to make this one point uh, on, on a hike and she just couldn't find it. And my thought was like, oh, well, maybe if you had GPS and uh, satellite imagery, you could find this. And she's like, I don't know what I, I don't know what I would do with that. And I'm like, oh, you, you'd be able to figure it out. I wouldn't worry about that. So fast forward to this past weekend at Eastern Washington, I have my satellite, my, my phone with the satellite imagery out and the GPS on it. And I see the point that I want to reach. I see it on the map and I'm walking. I can see where I'm walking. I see how fast I'm walking. I can see the elevation. And I, I somehow got turned around and never got to the point. I got to the point just to the right of it, separated cool. by an incredibly large chasm that w- was indeed on the map <laughs> Ooh. and was indeed on the satellite imagery. I just didn't recognize it. I took a side trail. I got distracted by butterflies or something. I don't know. Oh, gosh. But I couldn't even imagine. I probably would die out there. <laughs> There's, there's no real chance of that. I had a lot of water for all those who remember that one time. I, I have enough water now. But that wasn't the reason I was going out there. I was going out there to I was going out there to test some lenses, which seems like a stupid place to do it. But I also made cyanotypes there, if you remember the cyanotype episode that we did. I don't yeah. test things out easily or in a very good way, but I did this. So I took the 270 millimeter brass lens that I have which I had some testing done on that already. I, I enjoy that quite a lot. And I took a Petzvolt lens. Now, Petzvolt lenses are the old brass ones with a knob on the side. And those are basically portrait lenses. And I didn't realize exactly what that meant until I got out there and I really just couldn't get it to work. I could get it to focus on stuff and I'd taken mostly landscapes. And so I 
looked at it through the ground glass on this 4 by 5 on the Chamonix, and all lenses project an image back onto the film plane. Most cameras, you don't even worry about the edges of that or the vignetting. You don't worry about that. On 4 by 5 and, and large format, you do have to pay it some mind. And so when I uh, got, in, got under the hood and started looking through the ground glass, all the corners were all dark. And I could see the circle of that, that, the, that the lens was casting, the image circle. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Like, this lens is too small for my camera, which didn't make any sense. This is a big lens. Like you can't put yeah. this you can't put this on like a two by three or something. It won't fit. So like what what is what am I doing wrong? And I took the rear element off of it and like, okay, I, this works sort of. It projected cool. a larger image circle then. And then I focused on something a little closer, something about three feet away, and the image circle got very large, took over the whole ground glass. The image was a very Petzval look, you know, with like the swirlies around the side and a real crisp, real crisp center. Like, oh, this is a portrait lens. It's only a portrait lens. It isn't a lens that you can shoot portraits with. It's a lens that you can't shoot anything but portraits with. And I didn't realize that's what a Petzval was. And nobody ever explained that to me because everybody was always like, oh, Petzval, get a Petzval lens. And I don't know if they didn't know either or like literally everybody was just punking me or I didn't listen, which is very possible. So I think there might be a Petzval lens for sale because <laughs> I can't fucking use it because I don't really take portraits. It's a nice 140 millimeter lens. I think it's F4.5. No waterhouse stops or anything. That's super easy to use. And there we are. That was my, um, I, got, I got a few nice, I got a few pictures out of it. You know, I don't, I don't hate them, but there is, you know, that, that tight image circle. Are you going to take some portrait pictures with it before you sell it? Yeah. People like examples like, hey, look, this works. This is what it does. Yeah. I, I think before I sell anything, I want to do, you know, I want to show people that like, oh, look, this works. Here's what it does. And, you know, I, it's tempting because I have a few pictures where I took the rear element off and everything. It's, it's, it's nice. It's kind of a really fun image. Part of me wants to keep it just for that, but it's not so fun to do that. I think it's neat that you can hack an old lens and get it to work. That's kind of cool. But I'm not sure how I feel about like keeping a $500 lens that I have to take apart in the field to uh, make work. I don't think that's great. Yeah. You want something a little bit more like multi-faceted. I, I want something that's going to just work <laughs> for what I well, need yeah. to do. But it, it, is, it is a really beautiful lens. Uh, I don't know when I'll be selling it. I don't know if anybody really cares. But if you're interested in it, you know, contact me. You know, I'll probably do about five for it. So, I yeah, my my mistake and ignorance is potentially your gain. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of it. Overall, though, amazing hike. The flowers were just coming out. There oh, were good. Uh, there was some balsam out there, and um, and you could see like. I saw, I saw rock buckwheat, but not the flowers, just the plant. And I saw like the old balsam that was all dried and gray with a little bit of the new balsam coming up. I saw death camas just crawling out from under the rocks. It was so cool. I think this weekend, or maybe the weekend after y'all are hearing this, because I know you're all digging, you're, you're all like itching to go out there. Uh, I think the flowers will be in bloom for a good month and a half. Uh, from when this is published. So I will be out there a lot because that's just a wonderful place to be in the spring. 
you're so lucky. And this is, it's unfortunate. California has wonderful wildflowers. We have terrible fucking people. It is like a Instagram shit show. Every single time, every weekend, there is no way you can do spring flowers anymore. And I still see people walk through the poppies like photographers walk into the poppies, sit down or be in the poppies and like take a picture. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you idiot. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Well, what's <laughs> nice about Washington is that there aren't but there aren't people like that for the wildflowers. Yeah. At least yeah. In the so Eastern you don't part. have anybody like stomping around all over the flowers. No, but also for their they're not Instagram. They're not picture. rare and they don't need yes. to be protected. There's so much land out there where the wildflowers just grow that there isn't really a fear of like, well, shit, now we're not going to have wildflowers this year because people are idiots. That isn't an issue that we have. And I'm really fortunate to live where I do. Well, I mean, I don't live there. It's a three-hour drive. So I could be more fortunate. No, but it's, but, it is, you know. it's fairly close. I mean, that's yeah. basically how far I drive. That's true. If I, I want to go see like Antelope Valley or yeah. things like that. Um, but also drought has a lot to do with why we don't have flowers. It's not just because of Instagram influencers, but I do like to mention that because it is springtime and we should be able to enjoy it. But also, you know, maybe don't trample all over the flowers, you guys. Kind of lame. It is. Very I was going to ask you one thing about your trip. Do you ever bring a compass and do you know how to uh, do like topography like map readings i do bring a compass and i know how to use it in a very rudimentary get me the fuck out of here way i don't carry paper maps for when i go to places that i already know um and i at this point i'm mostly hiking in places that i know Mm -hmm. Uh, if i if I were, were hiking somewhere else where I got a new, new place where I didn't know the terrain at all, I would bring a paper map and I could get myself out of a place by using a paper map and a compass. Yeah. So I could do that. I'm just, I'm really out of practice. So I took a class a couple years ago through REI, basically just to learn how to identify um, certain features like on topographical Mm -hmm. like maps and it was a lot of fun I totally forgot most of it because (laughs) if you and they said it too they're like you're not going to use this you're going to forget it yeah but it's good to know and I would absolutely it was like a $20 class for like a half hour there was like three other people in the class Uh, I would totally take it again because it was awesome also kind of like kind of analog vibes there too it's true it's like how nice would it be to just, okay, you have obviously for emergency uses, you have like a satellite phone or whatever, but how nice would it be just to f- go out there with a map and a compass and just be like, all right, I'm going to go to that mountain over there. And like, you just take your readings every, you know, couple miles, just make sure you're on point. I think uh, I just sounds like a dream to me. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm like grow a beard. I'm going to like wear like some like sick ass buffalo check, dude, and some boots. Oh, my God. Man.
many women photographers on social media have been using hashtags like women with film and women who shoot film. Over the past year or so, companies like Kodak have been called out about the lack of representation on their main accounts. They were sharing almost exclusively male photographers. Because of this, women have given themselves a larger voice through the use of hashtags and due to being called out by photographer Izzy Farr and others, Kodak shit-canned the guy previously in charge of their IG account and have called upon women like Danielle, aka Girl with Too Many Cameras, to help feature more women. This all seems like a fairly nice victory. Nobody is claiming that it's suddenly solved gender inequality within the film community, but it's not nothing either. It's a good thing. But is it? According to an article entitled, She Shoots Film? Who Cares? Penned by photographer, content creator, and YouTuber Lucy Lumen, she'd like to, quote, offer a new perspective on how we can make a difference and maybe highlight where we might have been going wrong in this fight for representation. What she describes as wrong is what Izzy, Danielle, and a slew of other women have been doing. This includes encouraging women to use hashtags mentioned above, essentially forcing Kodak to recognize that women shoot film, and creating a space for women photographers to exist online so they can support and promote each other. Lucy worries that this is dividing the photography community and only creating problems. So, we will be taking a short look at Lucy's article. We will be reading a few quotes from it, not taking them out of context, but showing them to you as they are. (laughs) The first one we'll be talking about is one that says, this is a quote, I thought I could offer a new perspective on how we can make a difference and maybe highlight where we might have been going wrong in this fight for representation. We picked a couple quotes because I felt like it was necessary for us to just kind of get to the point and like find out, okay, what is she trying to say? And what are we hearing? And of course, the article will be linked in our show notes on our website. So uh, have a full read of it yourself, please. Uh, This first one, I'm like, great. You know, that was right in the beginning of the article. So what's her new perspective? What is that? I I had a hard time with that, honestly. Okay. I'm just not sure that somebody who read the article could walk away from it with any idea what this new perspective actually was. Yeah. So it's important to, you know, obviously, like if you're going to say that you have a perspective and it's new, you got to tell us what it is because I don't know what it is. Her new perspective, it really isn't new so much as it's kind of, it seems like she's just wants things to kind of remain as they are. Mm-hmm. And let's explain what we're talking about here. There's another quote, and I'll read that. Finding out I had been given a platform or an opportunity based purely on the fact that I was female, so a company or website could tick a box and absolve them of their underrepresentation issue, is like being used for your minority status and no different than it hindering you in the first place. Okay. That's a big one. That's that's a that's a tough one to weed through. So we we kind of did that. Lucy writes that she wants to be given the same opportunities and to be recognized based on her skill and of ability, etc. And she's mentions that another place in the article mm-hmm. as well. And I agree. Yeah, I do too, except one one thing. Recognized by whom? All this is really doing is keeping the power dynamic that's seemingly unchanged from where it is today. She wants to be recognized today. Yes. Not changing the power, not overthrowing the patriarchy or anything like that, but recognized today. So that's a system very firmly rooted in systemic sexism. She would rather be given the same opportunities and recognized by whom? Those who are in power who are men. 
Yes. Especially in the film community. Yeah. Whereas what a lot of the other women who are using the hashtags and the ones that she is saying are taking the wrong approach, what they seem to be doing is taking that power from the men and claiming it as their own, especially with the hashtags, but also with the sort of takeover of Codex social media accounts. Mm -hmm. That's that's actually changing something. In one part of the article, Lucy writes that the answer to this isn't men stepping aside or being cut out of the equation. Yeah, I agree. That is, that's uh, not the answer. Uh, and unfortunately, this is one of the biggest problems with her entire article. Over and over, she makes these arguments that don't exist so she can easily defeat them. Mm-hmm. Nobody was saying that men should be cut out of the equation of the film community. I'm not the film community equation. Nobody is saying. Yeah, that. no, of course not. Lucy is employing these strawman arguments to make her point, and it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anybody that's saying like men needs to step aside at all. No. I think if anything, we're just we've been saying, and Danielle's been saying, and and everybody's been saying that men need to step up and realize how many talented women are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Also frustrating was the need for corporations to suddenly just have souls. Like, no, I I don't want you to just instill this rule because I said so. I want you to instill this because you care. And they don't. They don't care. She says that here, I hope Kodak's sudden about face and attitude to inclusive representation was born of a real change in culture and not an appeasement for the sake of PR. Kodak is worried about P&L, baby, profit and loss. That's kind of it. <laughs> That's it. And honestly, if they're not representing 51% of the population, which is women, they are missing the mark. And that's just bad economics. Yeah. And so, of course, they're going to advertise and maybe even pander to women. And is it going to be sincere? No, it's a corporation. Nothing they do is sincere because it's not a real thing. I think it's important to point out that Kodak is not going to just pick any random woman off the street to take a picture. They have a product that they need to sell and it needs to look good. So a lot of the people that they're picking are curated because they are really good photographers. So it's not just because they are women, but it's also because they're good photographers. Also, I'm a woman. And if they picked me because I'm a woman, I'd be like, all right, that's cool. Do I get some film out of the deal? Because that's what I want. <laughs> but you're right. It's not just Kodak. Any company, any any company, what's, whatever, anybody's sharing photos on Instagram, they're going to share good photos, regardless of, of which of the genders it comes from. The problem before was that they were only picking photos by good male photographers and ignoring good women photographers. It wasn't that, it was just any old man. And now it's just going to be any old woman just because she's a woman. That's not happening. It's again, another straw man argument. So we'll go with another quote here. Moving on. I'm not saying these small changes and moves at a grassroots level aren't making a difference. They are. But the real change comes from awkward, hard, real conversations with other men about why this happens. I don't necessarily feel like this article was a awkward, hard, real conversation for men. I think most men read it and was like, yeah, (laughs) 
this is great. You know, she kind of talked a little bit about like the bro film guys in the beginning of the article and how like women are just over the bro thing. Right. And it's it's hard because it's like I I don't know Lucy personally and I don't want to like slander her or say anything mean. But I do think it's really important that she listen to the people that are having a struggle with this article because it's awkward and it is hard, but this is a real conversation. I'm not a man, but I have some issue with some of these points. And I think it's really important to, you know, hear people's voices. You can't just decide to write an article and then shut down and just say that, like, I'm not changing anything and I don't agree. And everybody's taking it out of context because what I think is important and as I've been learning (laughs) is it takes a really, really long time. And a really good editor to kind of get your point across, really. And I think she meant she meant well, but every single comment that I saw on this article on Facebook, on Twitter, were from men saying, yeah, I agree. Great article. I don't think I really saw a lot of issue with men saying that this was awful. That was an incredibly hard. rare occurrence. <laughs> An incredibly rare occurrence. A couple of things before we get back to the men, because men, we will be talking to you in a second here. Lucy says that she wants these real awkward, these hard conversations with men to be happening. And I'm not sure how she does not know this, but just because you're not part of these conversations doesn't mean they're not happening. They are happening. It's a slow change. Honestly, it's been a pretty quick change for a lot of men, but it's a slow change overall. But these conversations are happening, and just because Lucy isn't a part of them doesn't mean that she gets to say that they're not happening. And Mm -hmm. as a person who's been part of these hard conversations, that's kind of, I I don't, I'm going to say a lot of harsh things here, but honestly, open your eyes because they're happening. Absolutely. But we could do it and we can do better. As Lucy said, like we should be doing better. I, I, I do understand that. It's not like, oh, we have a hashtag. So everything's solved. Sexism is solved now. Yeah. That that's not what I'm saying. That's not I don't agree. No, it's not. This is an Instagram handle. I was talking to Danielle and I was like, oh, my gosh, like I love Women with Film Wednesday. It's amazing. It's a goldmine of women photographers. It's an index for someone to go and find something very, very specific for what they want. And I think that is amazing. And I think everybody should be able to have something like that. So speaking about the hard conversations with men. (laughs) Oh, do you have a little? Oh, yeah, because I we decided since Eric is technically a man that he gets to have this conversation with you because, you know. Well, I mean, men have a hard time listening to women. (laughs) So (laughs) let me put on my man voice. (laughs) Okay. The response I've seen from a lot of you boys out there who are otherwise decent fellows, you're very progressive in so many ways, and it's wonderful to see it, but a lot of the response has been largely in agreement with this. There could be a lot of reasons for it. Maybe you just wanted to support a woman, and that's okay, fine, I get what you're going for there. Maybe you're comfy and you're enjoying the systemic sexism and love it when a woman supports that too. Going to lean more towards that one, but hey, benefit of the doubt, right? What Lucy is suggesting necessarily leaves the power imbalance unfairly and unequally in our favor. And that may sound awesome, but I I promise you it's not. 
we've we've fucked up a lot of things with this power imbalance, and it's it hasn't been working for a couple millennia now. Uh, basically, since the dawn of <laughs> people, I'm just wanted to. Sorry, You're I'm like supposed to be here. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. That's not something we really should be in favor of. And when we put it that way, maybe you're not in favor of it now. Maybe you're looking at it in a different perspective. I don't know. Look, Lucy is obviously not Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> okay. Uh, very few people are. But when a woman writes something attacking other women and a bunch of dudes who normally don't give a shit about supporting women suddenly stand up and applaud her, that's a big goddamn red flag and treat it as such. Uh, Vanya, you can come back in now. Sorry. So I just want to remind you again, the title of the article is She Shoots Film? Question mark. Who cares? She actually draws attention to the headline in the article itself saying, does that headline feel jarring? It's supposed to. It's time we look beyond the Instagram hashtag celebrating female photographers as useful as they are. So I have had several conversations with a lot of women about about the article. And from what I'm getting, a lot of people seem to be really confused and had to reread it. Because I think we all were like, no, she's, you know, she, she wants better for us. But it just, I don't know, something about it just didn't sit well with a lot of people. And it was really, really like, it was, it was really hard. Cause I was like, am I crazy? Or is it just me? Am I reading this wrong? And I wasn't because a lot of people were telling me like, no, I, 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 I had to reread it a few times too. Uh, and someone even wrote to me, uh, she keeps saying people are taking things out of context, but honestly, there's no other way to interpret her article. She wrote to the cis white male demographic to let them know that everything is going to be okay because she's on their side. So I talked to Lucy just uh, shortly and I just mentioned that reading the article and kind of figuring out what we were going to do and that we decided that we wanted to talk about it. In the beginning, I didn't want to bring any light to it, honestly, because I was like, no, I don't know if I want to go there. As I read it for like the 20th time, I was like, <laughs> all right, I think I think we do need to address this because it's important. And uh, so I asked her and she just said it was OK for, for, you know, for us to to say whatever we said. I told her I was like, we're not going to, you know, no mean shit. I'm not I'm not trying to slander her of at course all. Not. This isn't slander at all. This is nothing close to that. I just want her to understand like how it, you know, made me feel and maybe a lot of other people feel. Uh, it was hard. I think it's really important to understand that if someone tells you, whoa, like, why did you throw me under the bus and not even ask if it was cool? You kind of have to make sure that people like know that, hey, I'm writing an article and you're going to be in it. <laughs> By the way. We'll end in the same way that she ended. The last line of her article is, so don't be tempted to ask, and I suppose she's speaking to a male interviewer here. So don't be tempted to ask, what's it like being a female photographer? Ask them about their photography instead. I have been interviewed about a half dozen times before, and I don't think I've ever been asked what it's like being a female photographer. I've definitely asked like what my desert like island camera was and shit like that. That's a pretty common one. <laughs> but, but definitely um, not like what it's like to be a woman, I think maybe my perspective 
possibly maybe they asked me in a in, in a different way but never just like what it, i don't think anybody's asking that question that, technically that might be a straw man argument there as well <laughs> possibly this one point i just want to come across because when i when we're talking about camping and i'm like hey you know put a pair of men's boots outside of your car or camp or tent or put an extra chair if you feel like you're going to be camping around a lot of people and uh so they know that maybe you're not by yourself i i do say that because i know women are are listening i do that on a daily basis because i'm raising a daughter and it's important for her to know all these things because i think they're valuable for her protection but i'm also saying it because i want men to understand what my experience is. I think it's really, really important because I'm experiencing life differently than not only men, but a lot of different other women as well. I mentioned this to you like several times and then you kind of felt like a lot of women were saying it to you as well. I heard this a lot and I know what you're going to say. What's wrong with being a female photographer? <laughs> like it's a bad thing and I'm like, what? Like, dude, I, I'm sorry, but... There is not a day that I wake up and not be so happy that I am a woman. I love being a woman. And yes, it's it's not easy all the time. There's some things, there's some struggles, just like anybody. But I love it. I love being a woman photographer. I am proud of being a woman photographer. I am proud of who I am in this world. It makes me so excited. I have no, there's no shame. There's no shame in that. And I think that's empowering and important. Each episode, we put on our house slippers, our cozy ward cardigans, you know, the ones with the, the old ward, Montgomery ward. You oh, know, I had those a places? Those. Yeah, yeah, me too. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so we put those on and we check our answering machine. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird ass question we come up with. And our question was what has convinced you that you have taken a good photo Ooh. Ooh. so vanya push the button we are sorry but all the office lines are temporarily engaged if you would like to leave a message please do so at the tone and the person you need to speak to will call you back as soon as possible thank you for calling hey y'all it's count snackula I think that for me, I feel like I've taken a good picture when I experience an outsized sense of gratitude upon looking at it. Uh, that might be because I wasn't sure if I braced the camera well enough during a long exposure, or wasn't sure how people's facial expressions would turn out, or maybe just wasn't sure that some bullshit old film stock I loaded up would even take an image. Uh, could be a lot of different things, you know, sometimes maybe even just not having had much of an expectation for a frame and then realizing it captured a moment quite well. But I guess that's really what it comes down to for me, is if I feel especially grateful that I have a picture, then I guess for me that means I feel like I took a good one. Do you think he says, ooh, that one's snackalicious? <laughs> I would assume so. 
Okay. Even good. if it wasn't, I, I so. assume he says that. I, I like that. The not the snackalicious. I like the snackalicious. <laughs> I know. We don't even need to like play anymore. Let's just stick with this that one and done. move on. Yeah. Thank that's you for it. listening to all through a lens. <laughs> no, I, I like that 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 sense of gratitude for shit just finally working out. I don't really know if he's talking about like the finished product or maybe like the the like when you take the picture, you you just get that feeling that like, yeah, this one's, there's something special about this one. And maybe it isn't even the picture. Maybe it's, it's the experience of taking the picture. But when all of that comes together and all that works out, that's a damn good feeling. For me, the most important thing is time. When I scan my photos in, I'm always a little disappointed as if I expect there to be something more than just a photo there. But film has made me really appreciate how long it takes to truly see something, especially with, with color, which tends to trick our brains into thinking that we see something. And the more time I give myself to grok something, the more I can find a new way of seeing it, editing it, cropping it, something like this, or deciding that maybe it's not quite as exciting as I thought when I took the photo. But I almost always find new photos when I go back through old folders. Yes. I, so I call that marinating Marinating. and it is a thing. It is a thing. And I unfortunately do that with more than just photos. I do that with zines as well, because (laughs) sometimes I'm just not ready or in the mood to look at shit and I need like a fresh set of eyes. I need to steal someone's, pluck somebody else's eyeballs out of their faces and put it in mine. (laughs) That, that sounds healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, this is Ferdinand, FerdBird77. So for me, I think it's a very personal thing. What other people consider a good photo, for me, if it's a technically good photo and that's it, that doesn't really speak to me. But I think it's got to do with style and intent. If you intend to capture something in a certain way and you're successful at that, then that's a good photo for me. I love that because you'll get a a photo in your mind and some people call it your mind's eye. And I really hate that expression. It grosses me out. I think it's like, you know, those, those, well, Argus, how he had the the eyes all over his body. Yeah. I picture that in your mind, like in my brain, like an eyeball in my brain. And it just disgusts me. Oh, it's like that, um, that was it tryptophobia. Yeah. It's a lot like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's disgusting. But that's not what he's talking about, so I'll back away from that. What is he talking about? Because I kind of, I feel bad, but as soon as he said Ferd the bird, I was like, Ferd, 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 Ferd is. And then I was like singing that song and I was like, shit, I got to pay attention. So can you? Good job. What he's essentially saying is that if you intend to take a really, a certain photo and you nail it, that's what makes him happy. That's what makes him feel like he's taking a good photo, like the follow through. And a lot of a lot of film photography is really pitched as, hey, you can get a good photo anywhere. Whatever happens, happens. And it's crazy all these things that, that can go wrong and it still works out. That's true. All those things are great. But what he's saying is that like, well, if you can overcome all of those things and get the photo you want, that's what makes him happy. And, you know, there is something to that. There, there are two separate things and I think they're both valid. It's it's just that there's something really special about getting what you want out of film. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of also is a callback to what Nick said earlier, because, yeah, what if there was camera shake when you were doing a long exposure or you put some weird film in and you're kind of unsure if it's going to work out? And when it does, it's like, yes. 
<laughs> Ancillary Adams here from Instagram. Um, basically, for me, gut feeling. And that's right about 75% of the time. It took me a while to kind of develop it because at first, every single shot I took, I just kind of felt like none of them were going to come out. As my skills progressed, I got a little bit more confident in my work. So I think the highest it's going to go is about 75%. Um, sometimes what I think is a good shot ends up being absolute crap. And what I think is an absolute crap shot ends up being like the best one on the roll. So, eh, you know, it happens. I, I get that, though. It seemed like he was saying two different things here, but I think both those are, are, are very valid. You know, sometimes you just get a gut feeling this is going to be a good one, and it's not. And sometimes you get surprised, and it is. Yeah, then you slap your mommy down. You can, Yeah, you're getting, you're making a Devo reference that nobody's going to get. It's basically <laughs> just me. <laughs> okay, and our last one is from, I believe, a first-time caller. We have a lot of callers, but I think this is a first, I think Ferdinand was the first time as well. Hi, Ferdinand. Here. Call again. Hey, Eric and Vanya, Alyssa here on Instagram. It's Alyssa, Alyssa. What makes me think I've taken a good photo? Um, well, there's two elements to it. And one is when someone who has a photographic eye that I admire compliments my photo. That always means a lot. And then on the other side of it, um, so when I started film photography, I was in therapy working on connecting with my body. And part of that is observing how certain emotions feel in your body. Like, how does it feel in your body when you're angry, etc. And so I kind of set an intention that whenever a scene made me pause, I would take a photo of it because I had to pay attention to how my body was feeling to notice that I had that pause of, oh, it's pretty or it makes me feel nostalgic or happy. And when I'm reviewing a photo and looking back on it, if it also makes me pause, that makes me happy. It makes me feel like I took a good photo. Oh my God, I love her so much. <laughs> that was amazing. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, she said two things, and I think both are really, really important. There was somebody earlier this week, or I guess last week, bitching about how critique is dead, and he was just whining about that shit on, on Twitter. And it was obnoxious and annoying, and he should explode in hell. But... When someone compliments you, someone who you respect compliments you, that's wonderful. And I think we really should start handing out a lot more compliments because not not like complimenting just to compliment and not like, you know, just blowing smoke up somebody's ass just to do it, but giving out genuine compliments. I think it's incredibly helpful, like actually helpful to photography. Mm -hmm. It's positive reinforcement, which has been proven to be a good thing. Who's a good boy? It's just nice. It's just nice to do. Oh my gosh, it's absolutely nice. I I remember the compliment. You know, you know when you're like a teenager mm -hmm. and you're wearing something probably weird, but someone's like, "Hey, I really like what you're wearing. It's really cute." You get like a cool compliment. Thank you. Yeah, it like kind of sticks with you. It's sweet. It is. And if it's someone that you like like a photographer that you admire or look up to and they like something of yours, like that's like, wow, like that's amazing. Yeah. But the way that she 
is like tapping in. Uh, like, I want to. Sh- does she live in LA? <laughs> I was like, I want to shoot with her. It sounds amazing. <laughs> Don't know where she lives. <laughs> like, that sounds like some meditative, like, like retreat, like photography retreat. Oh, what's something? The second, the second thing she was saying. Well, yeah, yeah. It's I, I love that because I, I haven't really been able to put it into words. Where something makes you pause. Um, I think I think I so eloquently describe it as like, oh shit. <laughs> And that's not not quite the same thing, but when you're when you're out shooting and you take you something just catches your eye and sort of makes you feel a certain way, and, and she's putting this way better than I do. So just I guess go back and listen to that. That's something to pay attention to, and if you can capture that with a camera, awesome. That's part of it. But when you get home and and develop it, scan it or whatever, and you see the finished product, and you get that same feeling, that's something special. That to me is, that's your good photo. I think, I mean, maybe it's not the same for everybody. I think that could be said for almost everything that we've heard today is that capturing that same feeling that made you take that picture in the first place is what is a good picture. And I'd be, I know we talk about this during um, during dev party and we'll talk about our answers in the next dev party, but I don't know if I could ever come up with a better answer than what she said. Yeah, you I know, don't think so either. Capturing that, like how your body felt. Paying attention to how your body feels is not other than like being completely fucking exhausted from hiking is not something I'm really used to doing. I'm Generation X. We don't give a shit about that stuff. It's just not something we care about. We, um, I don't know, we're, we're messed up and wrong in some no, ways. No, but it's true. And also you have to, because for instance, I'm trying to to raise a little badass riot girl as we speak and having to like realize what I am lacking in my own personality in life. I've had to kind of pick it up a notch and realize like that there's a lot of work I need to do and being mindful and realizing these certain things is important. Sure. Thank you everybody for calling. We absolutely appreciate it. We would love to hear from more of you for the next question. And Vanya, what is the strangely similar yet completely different next question? I know it's like we (laughs) came up with this one right now. What has convinced you that you have taken a bad photo? Think about this. It's not as easy of a question as you would think. So think about it a little bit. Eric and I both kind of listened to different podcasts and I was kind of going through some of the podcasts that I listened to and was wondering what kind of keeps me around. What's interesting? What's fun? Obviously, if you like something like photography, that's something, but also embarrassing and dramatic and weird stories are, I think, an integral part of a good podcast. I think so. Yeah. Um, do you do you have any embarrassing stories? For- oh God, come on! <laughs> I have spilt my guts on this podcast like a trillion times, literally so many times. We both and, have. We both have talked yeah. about some pretty embarrassing things with photography. Oh my gosh! Yeah, like there's gonna be fails. Yeah, I think it's time for them to do it. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent. So we would love to hear your stories now. There's some rules or parameters here, okay? Okay. It has to be at least two of these five things. Okay, at least two. 
Okay. Or three. Two or three. If it's really two or good. Three. Two. It has to be really good. I mean, good if it two. has all of the things, you just automatically get on. So just uh, <laughs> tell them what, what, what are those things? Must be funny. Okay. It has to be dramatic. Of course. Maybe a little scary. All right. A little weird. Okay. And obviously embarrassing. Embarrassing is always helpful. If you have to put yourself to shame, we want to hear about it. Yes. And we want to read about, we want to read it to the rest of the photographic community as well. So we can all be laughing at work and no one knows why. <laughs> That's how I listen to podcasts. Why is Eric <laughs> Just, laughing? Yes. Dickering to yourself in the back room. Like, what is going on with this guy? <laughs> I'm trying to remember like, Okay, yeah, you actually, you almost died in Bullet Canyon. I guess that's kind of funny now, right? Has enough time gone by? Where it's funny? It was funny yeah. right away. As soon as I got a motel room, I sat down before I even showered and shakily wrote out. No, I didn't. I, 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 I recorded it for Sunny 16. I have very little memory cried. of this. And what's that? I'm sorry. Didn't you cry? Yeah, it was fucking, it was terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I was dehydrated and fucking lizards were talking to me. So yes, I was terrified. <laughs> so yeah, I, I almost died in Bullet Canyon. And if you want to hear that story, you can listen to one of the Sunny 16 episodes. I can't remember which one it is. I was thinking of like a funny story about both of us actually included because we photographed together. So there's got to be embarrassing shit that's going to happen eventually to us, right? And it's not no. necessarily... What do you mean? Okay, look, you stick around with me long enough, you're... <laughs> Someone's pooping their pants. <laughs> I was remembering Canyonlands when, like, that rogue wind, like, came up from out of the canyon. I was, like, embracing your tripod like I was gonna die <laughs> with my eyes closed, sand in my mouth. Like, it was intense. Oh, yeah. It was so scary. And funny because you're like, I'm going to take a long exposure when the wind is like blowing 60 miles per hour. It was a pretty intense wind. Now it was blowing us away from the canyon ledge. No, it felt like I was going to get pushed in. Well, so in essence, do you have a photography story to tell us? Is it funny, dramatic, scary, weird, or embarrassing? Were you a complete failure or did you nearly die? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Email your story to the professionals, us. Our courteous and efficient staff are on call 24 hours a day to serve all of our storytelling needs. We're, We're ready, ready to, to believe... I'm going to do it at the same time. Okay. We're, We're ready, ready to, to believe, believe you. you. <laughs> Just email us at allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. So we're back and we have a bit of a all through a lens first time thing that we're doing. We have never had two guests on at a time. Or if we have, we've all forgotten about it. <laughs> so today we have Sarah Murphy. Hello. And Charlie Camugula. Hey. So uh, what are you doing here on our podcast? Well, we thought we'd uh, weasel our way on and join you funny and smart folks. Maybe talk a little bit about some like mysteries, queries, and maybe a little even drama that's photography related and stuff that we can like roll some personal anecdotes into, you know, like stuff that isn't really on Wikipedia, Googleable out there, just kind of like 
personal thoughts and interesting observations. I, I, I'm very interested in all of those things. Would you perhaps like to distill all of that into a monthly-ish segment, maybe? What an idea. I, well, we might as well. Well, there's two things I love. It's photography and questions. So let's do this. Oh, my God. I love photography and questions. I, I know you do. You're my people. <laughs> my dream career as a child was girl detective. And I still think about that every day, just like, am I adhering to girl detective today? How can I be more girl detectives? Mm. I wanted to be Encyclopedia Brown pretty much. So this is me fulfilling that destiny and bringing girl detective energy into this podcast. Yes. So on an average of like 30 days out of the month, how many of those days are girl detective days successfully? Honestly, Probably all of them to some extent. Some days I hit it out of the park more than other days. There's always something a little off, a little askew that I can poke my little nose into and try and figure out what smells. I will say as a friend of Girl Detective, I've seen Girl Detective solve a lot of mysteries. It is, it is daily. I will back that. That's beautiful. I like the Girl Detective idea. I like maybe even possibly these queries on the road occasionally perhaps <laughs> you know i see mysteries and i i will travel to them <laughs> no but i i do travel a lot i love the great american road trip so i'm always trying to get myself back out on the road i was talking to someone the other day and they were uh saying something about how they couldn't believe that i drove from chicago to phoenix they were like the flight is like four hours and i'm like that's true. I didn't say it was the most efficient way to travel. It's just my preferred way to travel. I mean, do you want to see people fight each other and like be mad because they have to wear masks? Or do you want to listen to your own music, be able to photograph <laughs> and be by yourself and scream and cry and fart? And pee on the side of the road. Exactly. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. There's an obvious choice yeah. to me. <laughs> Uh, I guess first actual question, how did you two meet each other? Well, we actually met on Instagram. So you know, I was trying to remember what the actual joke was earlier today, and I couldn't remember it. So you oh, I got you. Thank so you. Sarah, queen oh, of signs, king of signs, liege of signs, all mm. of them, uh, posted an amazing picture of like um, a hot dog sign and was it like a bot dog or something like that? It was that like was a robotic hot dog of, of some sort. And Sarah's uh, captions are like one half of the amazingness of her photos too. It's like a, you get a beautiful photo and then you get a joke that goes oh, along. Yeah, she it's wonderful. Captions. Yeah, so she posts like bot dog or something about a bot dog. And then I respond, I want to take a megabyte out of that bot dog. And then, oh, oh, nice. The was instant. We've been talking shit and about hot dogs ever since. <laughs> It is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then we actually met, I don't know what year that was. If I had to guess, like, maybe, like, 2017-ish. Yeah. And then, I don't know, maybe, like, a couple years later, I went out to Chicago. And then we smoked a lot of weed, took some pictures. Sarah got crushed on her bike by a car. <gasps> wait, that was not the ankle, though. No, that was the skateboard. Yeah, wait, wait, I wasn't there. <laughs> like, you got ran over by a car or hit by a car, or did you hit a car? Good question. I, I was on my way home from a music festival on my bike, and I, it was like a three-mile ride 
And literally right in front of my apartment, a car hit me. And that's fucked up. Yeah. And I uh, was like, am I okay? I was very dazed. I was wearing a helmet, but I was very dazed and was kind of like, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay, you know? And the man that hit me was like, I mean, if you think you're okay. And I was like, yeah, I live right here. Like, I'm just going to go home. Thank you. And then I went inside and looked in the mirror and I was just bleeding out of my face. And that man looked me in the eye and said, oh, if you feel okay. What a and let sure. me go home. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was at her place during the time because I was out during the day and she was at the festival. She comes in and she's just covered in blood. <laughs> You're like, oh my God. <laughs> Then you were okay, but it was fucking yes. ridiculous. I, I never trust when someone says they're okay because you're never okay. And usually it'll hit you as soon as someone's like, oh my God, are you okay? And like, because you're okay, but then you're like, oh no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not okay. <laughs> like that adrenaline just like gets That's you. That's what I was going to say. The adrenaline yeah. is so spiked. You really don't know. <laughs> I think it's natural to just be like, I'm fine for whatever reason. Because you want to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's optimistic. I know. If they <laughs> asked me before, I was probably not fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, literally the only when... time my answer will be no, I'm fine is right after I've hit been hit by a car. You yeah, come up to exactly. me on a normal Tuesday and I'm like, here are my gripes one through ten. <laughs> yeah. Here are the mysteries I haven't solved yet. Yeah. Things are not fine. Charlie, what have you been shooting lately? Yeah. You haven't been posting a ton. Oh, I'm so bad at posting. And I have, like, hundreds of thousands of fucking photos that nobody's <laughs> ever seen. I, like, I, like, beat myself a lot about not being able to keep up with the routine of sharing it. And I don't know why it's so hard for me. Like, it takes me, like, an hour every time I try to fucking share anything. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's my own problem. But anyway, most of my shooting is just kind of, like, it's either, like, on my way to work, like, ooh, look at this crazy garbage, snap, or like, I'm on a trip where the goal is like, where's all the crazy garbage? Let's go find it. So, like, a lot of my day-to-day stuff, I don't really like, shoot a lot actively, but I did just go on a road trip with the Sarah Murphy on with the goal, <laughs> that's her, with the uh, goal of shooting. We, uh, I met her in Phoenix, and then we drove up to Joshua Tree and back, Ooh. tried to stop as, as much like outsider art or like Ooh. weird abandoned diners or like weed stores that we could. Nice. And take a lot of photos, and that was super fun. So, Sarah, looking at your Instagram, the first thing I notice is Route 66. Tell us about your Route 66 trip. We've never talked about 66 on the podcast, oddly enough. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's weird ooh. for a photography podcast. It's funny. So I am I live in Chicago. I'm based in Chicago. And my boyfriend lives in Phoenix. And so I've done parts of it over and over again. I've never done the whole thing. Mm. So it's mostly just bits and pieces along the way. I think the part I've probably spent the most time on is between Phoenix and like Oklahoma City, probably that kind of area. Mm -hmm. Um, But more often than not, what I'm doing anytime I go on a road trip is turning off. The first thing I do is always turn off the tolls on the map because that'll kick out any of the bigger highways. And then I will take off highways at certain points to see where I can cut them out without it being like a million hours. Yeah. So beyond just Route 66, it's a lot of just 
normal rural, rural routes and things like that. Would you say that that's like the best region for for signs is from Phoenix to Oklahoma City? It's a great region. I always have loved the Southwest. So I think I'm a little bit partial to it just because I'm like, ooh, cactuses, ooh, palm trees. <laughs> like as a like terminal Midwesterner, like those things are will always be exotic to me, which is kind of funny, you know, especially to my boyfriend who lives in Phoenix and like literally has palm trees in his yard. And I'm like, what is this Beverly Hills? Because I'm <laughs> a hillbilly. But um Really anywhere you go, if you just take off the like, click the avoid highways box, like you'll find great signs. So Sarah, there's so many of your shots have no people in them at all. What does it take for someone to get in one? They have to be quick (laughs) (laughs) or they have to be somewhat camouflaged and that I didn't notice them. Um, I actually have a picture of Salvation, Salvation Mountain that Charlie (laughs) snuck their way into because they were wearing a very bright outfit and it's a very bright place and they blended in perfectly. And it wasn't until I got the shot back, I was like, God damn it, Charlie. (laughs) I really did blend in. To me, with the pictures that I take, I find people to be very distracting and that the presence of people is already felt in the picture and I don't need like people, persons, individuals to be in them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have people in my photos. I will wait. I will outweigh anyone. It is Survivor out there. I am outweighting, outwitting, outlasting. I will spend all day. Well, okay. Yeah. Same question with trees. Your shots feature very few trees, even when you're in places that have lots of trees. What's a tree got to do to show up in them? I thought this question was so funny, I have to say, (laughs) because the people thing is so purposeful, you know, like I was like, oh, you know, like I will wait forever. And the tree thing, I was like, well, that can't be right. And then I'm like looking at my stuff and I'm like, huh. Guys, can I come in? There's a picture that Sarah took right behind me of a tree. Well, the funny thing about that tree, though, is it's not a naturally occurring tree. It's a potted plant. Oh, yeah. Also, like, I love the picture because it's so weird and surreal. So yeah. that that does make it even more interesting. No, it was. It, it is a beach. It's a beach in Wisconsin on Lake Michigan. <laughs> okay, I was like, beach. A, so the lake beach, yeah. And uh, they brought out. They have like, I don't know, maybe like five to ten of these potted palms that they had been like halfway covered with sand to sort of look like they were native, but not really, because they really stuck out like sore thumbs. And it was a very surreal thing to experience and just kind of funny. And when I posted that, everyone's like, oh, where is this? And I loved saying, Wisconsin, exactly where you'd think. Yeah. So bizarre. Home of the palm, Wisconsin. (laughs) You seem to be making very specific color choices. Which emulsions are you using to get that? I love bright colors. I love Fujifilm. Fuji Superior is probably my favorite film. I used to refer to myself as a Fuji fangirl, but I stopped doing that because I decided I didn't really want to like um, participate in like capitalism culture <laughs> where you pretend that brands are your friends and they could give two shits about you, you know? Respect. They're not paying you. Exactly. Yeah. 
but uh we're not even putting that film shit yeah i know fuji's <laughs> talk about that later very cool so yeah. not a very good friend at all as a fellow fuji film fan yeah fuck them right <laughs> yeah exactly the four f's yeah. you know god bless lamography for still making an 800 speed film that's bright and somewhat affordable i want to know how themselves press is doing lately I'm a little busy, like a little more than I want to be, to be honest, but that's okay. It's my fault. I put myself in these positions, but I have some super exciting current drops and upcoming drops I'd love to share. So I just recently released one by amazing photographer Taylor Sperry. I think Mm -hmm. Eric definitely has his hands on one. Yep. Taylor's super sweet. And when we were working on putting a book of her work together, she was sending me all these pictures, and I kind of noticed, like... Taylor, all your photos look like dioramas. Like, how do you manage to take these, like, gorgeous, like, hyper-detailed, hyper-charming film photos that just, like, fill a landscape with, like, every single thing you'd want in it? It's like, her photos look like if you were to, like, fill the diorama of, like, a model town and just, like, pick and choose all your charming little items and put them in, that's what her photos look like. And so we ended up pulling out all these really gorgeous, again, hyper-detailed adorably charming film photos and we decided to call it diorama so it is basically uh windows into the world of taylor sperry and then she said that once we started playing with the dioramas theme and i'm like oh my god that's so cute so i drew all these windows for the cover and it came out really cute it's it came out so cute and taylor's just sweet baby angel everyone should follow her now and then I have one that I'm really excited about for this month that I'm dropping um, with this uh, painter photographer. His name is Corey Marshall. He has a lot of like abstract palette based. They're just really beautiful, and, like vivid in the way they pop is really gorgeous. So we're pairing that with his film photos of just, you know, general life observances. But he has a lot of like really bright colors that pair well with his painting. There's like a lot of fruit involved. And who doesn't love film photos of fruit? So this next publication is going to be painting slash film photos of Corey's work. It's going to be called Ordinary Fruit. And then the one following that is I've been working with... Uh, photographer and illustrator quasi boyd bolden to publish a new project he's been working on that is best way to describe this would be illustrations on top of photographs and the photographs are just like environmental photographs of la where he lives and then his illustrations which are really like solid and vibrant and strong pull out certain elements of the photos and like basically allow you to focus on them because they are a different meeting on top of a an existing one. So we're, okay. we're now working on like, what's the most interesting way to display this? Yeah. Yeah. An idea is growing and that it should be open for May release on that one. Mm-hmm. But we'll see what happens. And I'm also about to get ready to go to Iceland in May. So things could shift a little bit. Oh, holy shit. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty excited they- about that. Honestly, pretty lazy shooter these days. I'm all like... The the most effort I want to put into my shots is waiting for an hour for someone to leave. Other than that, like, I don't want to set up a tripod. Like, that's ridiculous to me. Like, I don't want to make a scene, like, setting up a tripod and, like, standing around. Like, don't look at me, please. I'm just trying to shoot and leave. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I tried to... Last winter, I tried to kind of train myself to set up a tripod in a city setting. Oh, good for you. 
And so I found all of these remote places of Seattle where nobody goes. Ooh, yeah. And I set up my tripod. <laughs> but it didn't but prepare anyway. me at all for setting up a tripod in around people because there are no people there because I hate shooting around people. What is it that you hate shooting around people? Just curious. I want to see if our answers are similar. Is it being perceived? People just wanting to know what you're doing, paying too much attention to you, or you're just trying to blend in? I live in a city where I'm constantly around literally millions of people. So for vacations, I like to go where there's zero people. Mm -hmm. If I can find a spot where I'm the only person within 20 miles of me, I'm there. I want that. Yeah. So it's really just like I I need to not be around people. Um, Striking a balance in a small town, um, it's probably more of an embarrassed kind of situation where like I don't want to be that guy who sets up a tripod on you know, in a town, I'd like to say like, oh, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm exploiting their town, but it's not, it's not really that. It's, I'm just embarrassed and, and a little, little shy. <laughs> yeah, I can relate yeah. to all these. When I, I make a bunch of silly little t-shirts for myself. Oh, I'm wearing one. This one says, not an art. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's funny. And I was watching, um, what about Bob recently? Just like, oh. And he has a shirt that says, don't hassle me, I'm local. And I thought that was so funny. So I made a shirt with iron on letters that says, don't hassle me, I'm local. <laughs> and I started wearing it in situations like that. And oddly, it really does make me feel more comfortable, even though it's a bold-faced lie, it's a stupid t-shirt. But something about it has really made me feel more comfortable in situations like that, oddly. I like that, I like that idea. And we should all make iron on letter t-shirts that say, local news photographer. And then no matter where you are, you can just be like, but this is my work shirt, I'm a local news photographer. (laughs) We are at our final our final question. What can we expect from you two in uh, the upcoming show, which would be the next show? I, th- I mean, I think this is it. It's a lot of rambling, <laughs> maybe. No. <laughs> yeah, I guess as far as what we'll talk about, we recognize that you both run a photography podcast and you are the people that talk about photography and you don't need like just another two random people coming out talking about the same shit that you talk about but like what we do as friends is like we kind of like notice observations like among our peers like how they shoot like what they shoot and we can like talk about it amongst mm-hmm. ourselves like why do you think they would do this would you do something like this so i guess what we think we would bring to the table is yeah just talking about like weird things about being a photographer or just taking photos in general, uh, maybe rolling some like personal anecdotes into that and kind of like, I mean, I, I almost use the word unpacking, but that's like a way too serious of a word for this. Just kind of like developing all the weird shit that comes from <laughs> what we shoot the shit about. Nice. No, I tried, I tried too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, yes. Mysteries, inquiries, drama, Mm-hmm. Photography related with some personal flair. Should we wrap? Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. I'm hungry. Well, I think I need another snake meal. <laughs> that's just eating. Now then. you're just a human again. That's just how she is. I am so excited. This is going to be so much fun. I think so. I don't know. It's just a special treat for everybody. Uh, so everybody, welcome them. We hope to be the maraschino cherry in your Shirley Temple. <laughs> yes, multiple. Well, at least three. Three cherries in twenty twenty. Cherries, <laughs> but they're gonna come out with the not all all is hashtag and try to kill oh, yeah. <laughs> Not all martinis. <laughs> 
Mind shaken, not stirred. <laughs> that was that was perfect. So I'll allow it. All right, you guys, thank you so much for coming on. It was like awesome to talk with you. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. So right. much. Bye. 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 W.E.B. Du Bois is remembered as a civil rights leader, a historian, a sociologist, and one of the founders of the NAACP. But he also amassed one of the largest collections of photographs of Black middle-class families to present to the world at the 1900 Paris Exposition. The 1900 Paris Expo had all any post-Victorian could imagine. This World's Fair sprawled out over 530 acres. It exhibited some of the newest inventions and wonderments of the day. There was the escalator, the dry cell battery, the diesel engine, a huge-ass Ferris wheel, and some of the first plastics, also electric cars. They repainted the Eiffel Tower just for the occasion. There were displays from all over France and an endless array of art. The Palace of Electricity displayed thousands of light bulbs and new electrical devices, all powered by steam. There was a Palace of Industry, the Palace of Architecture, and the world wouldn't soon forget the amazing Palace of Furniture. But the most important palace, at least to the photographer, was the Palace of Optics. Mm. Here, the Lumiere brothers showed their latest motion pictures. A giant telescope was built for the fair, and an enormous kaleidoscope somehow managed to wow everybody. Fairgoers also witnessed the latest in X-ray technology. But curiously enough, our story doesn't take place in the Palace of Optics. It also wasn't a part of the national pavilions. Forty nations, who were not France, were invited to set up their own displays to show off their non-France countries. The United States Pavilion was shaped like a mini version of the U.S. Capitol building. For the most part, it was all commercial and industrial displays. Interesting enough, but also pretty boring. Our story takes place in the Palace of Social Economy and Congresses, which displayed various artifacts and information on what would later be termed human rights. Part of the United States exhibit were designed by W.E.B. Du Bois, a Black American sociologist and historian. It was called the Exhibit of American Negroes and featured books of patents displays by Black universities like Fisk, Howard, Tuskegee, and North Carolina A&T. But most importantly, it contained 350 photographs of mostly middle-class Black Americans. At this time, this was a revolution. Most of the world saw Black Americans as vaudevillian caricatures. Many progressives saw only the photos of formerly enslaved people or impoverished rural classes that black people actually dressed and lived as most other people in the Western world, that there were middle-class black Americans at all was shocking. But what wasn't shocking is that the exhibit nearly didn't happen. World's fairs were huge events and the planning took years. So when word got around that Paris would be holding the fair in 1900, the United States government wanted to take part to show the world its advances. African-American lawyer and journalist Thomas Calloway noticed that America seemed to have forgotten the entirety of its Black population. Again, 
Less than five years before, Calloway had served as the Georgia State Commissioner for the 1895 Atlanta Exposition, in which he drew attention to the lives of Black Americans on a national level. He knew that this could be done on a much larger scale if he could set up something similar at the 1900 Paris Expo. He quickly penned a letter to over a hundred of the most prominent Black Americans. This got word to the Black community. He also petitioned President William McKinley and Congress. But by the time they pushed through a resolution giving Callaway just 15000 it was four short months until the opening of the Expo in Paris. Pressed for time, Callaway turned to W.E.B. Du Bois. They had been friends during their days at Fisk University. Du Bois had gone on to be the first black American to receive a doctorate from Harvard. He was widely published and widely respected. Now Du Bois was a professor at Atlanta University, and he was just the man for the job. But just what that job was, nobody really knew. Du Bois and Calloway talked it over and together came up with a list of topics to cover, including the history of Black Americans since emancipation. They wanted to cover education and its effects, books published by Black Americans and patents held by and businesses run by members of the Black community. They also decided that the exhibit should be positive. There would be no images of lynchings, no graphic mention of slavery, nothing meant to shock the viewers, who were already well acquainted with these images anyway. They wanted the exhibit to show the triumph of the Black community, the progress, the victory, but also the normalcy. According to Du Bois, I wanted to set down its aim and methods in some outstanding way which would bring my work to the notice of the thinking world. The Great World's Fair at Paris was being planned and I thought I might put my finds into plans, charts, and figures so one might see what we were trying to accomplish. Du Bois students created 30-some colorful charts which serve well as the first infographics and were decades ahead of their time. The photography to be contained in the exhibit and the crux of our topic today wasn't exactly an afterthought, but it involved more gathering and curating than creation. It is, however, what is most remembered about Du Bois' exhibit. Du Bois would later wonder, suppose the only Negro who survived some centuries hence was the Negro painted by white Americans in the novels and essays they had written. What would people in a hundred years say of black Americans? With this sentiment in mind, Du Bois collected hundreds of portraits of members of his community. Gathering these photos was not as huge of a task as you might expect. Du Bois sent out the call to prominent members of the community, as well as a slew of Black universities, and within weeks, he was swimming in more photographs than he could imagine. Black-owned businesses also contributed photos, newspapers, hotels, manufacturing companies, all had something to show. As the photography portion of the exhibit took shape, the pictures could easily be divided into two categories. First were the portraits, and second were the images of daily life, the homes, businesses, the Black community, all which appeared very normal by design. But it was the portraits that gave a literal face to the community and the exhibit. The photo albums created began with portraits arranged with the subject looking forward into the camera, and then another photo of the same subject in profile. This was very much like a mugshot, and it was not on accident. By this point in history, mugshots were known the world over, but especially in France, where they were invented. We talked about this in our episode, Mugshots and Memorials. Well, Du Bois was undoubtedly playing on that idea. He was also performing a little bit of parody. Mugshots were then seen as also part of science. Remember how we talked about early forensics looking at various facial features and body types to predict which traits would signify who would be a criminal? Du Bois was very likely playing on those photos as well. 
But he was also calling back to an earlier and even more sinister use of photography of black Americans. In 1850, a Harvard scientist named Louis Agassiz had a series of portraits and profiles taken of enslaved black men and women of South Carolina. He wanted to use these daguerreotypes to prove once and for all that the black race was a fully separate species of animal from the white race. Du Bois also played off of images created by Francis Galton, a white supremacist and eugenicist. He even coined the term. Galton created images of racial types by compositing identically sized portraits of, for example, Jewish men, thus creating what he called the Jewish type. He did this for pretty much every race, detailing what he saw as the negative traits. Galton's portraits were closely cropped, and Du Bois followed suit. These first photographs, essentially mugshots, were speaking the scientific language of the day. But as the photo albums went on, the portraits changed, moving from the scientific to the social. These portraits widened the cropping to include an emphasis on the clothing of the sitter. They were more modern-looking and fashionable some still front-facing, but many slightly turned in a three-quarter view rather than the mugshot profile. For these, Du Bois also called upon a Black Atlanta photographer named Thomas Askew, who ran a photography studio out of his home. Askew's portraits were a bit different from the rest of the portraits submitted, which were essentially closely cropped yearbook photos. Askew, possibly due to the influence of his wife, a seamstress, Photograph not just the face and shoulders, but much of the torso showing off the frills and ladies' dresses or the tailoring of the men's coats. Oh, and the hats. Always the hats. Clothing was very important to the middle-class Black community, and there was much more on display in Askew's work. Thomas Askew's family was always photographed as impeccably dressed. They were shown playing instruments or reading. His six sons and three daughters were raised in the arts. Askew didn't merely take portraits. He was a portrait artist, revealing something unique and uplifting about every sitter. Du Bois' choice in Askew was a wonderful decision. Each portrait gave the subject space to show their personality and hats. Askew's portraits allowed room to breathe, to fill the frame with the essence of the person in front of the camera and their hat. There were seriously a lot of hats. With both types of portraits, the technical and the social, Du Bois was able to convey and speak to both the scientific curiosities to the fairgoers, as well as the artistic. All of these together, along with the photos of businesses, churches, and factories, made up what he titled Types of American Negroes. This was a direct counter to Galton's eugenics idea of racial types. There was not, as Galton insisted, a Negro type. Du Bois was showing the wide and endless array of types within the Black community. Galton's definition of Negro was stereotypical and fully relied upon prejudicial and racist tropes. Du Bois spoke to that idea and smashed it by showing all members of the Black community. Du Bois would later write, I was of course aware that all members of the Negro race were not Black, and that pictures of my race which were current were not authentic nor fair portraits. He was speaking of how most whites saw black people. But here was his chance to change that, including photos of white passing black Americans. This subtly challenged Jim Crow era laws, which, which attempted to draw a distinct visual line between white and black. The photos selected by Du Bois showed the middle class black community from home and church to school and work. And to the white viewer, all was eerily familiar. The parlors and family rooms of the exhibit looked identical to their own. The churches were materially 
indistinguishable from their own houses of worship. The schools and the factories were non-different from where they learned and made up a living. And most importantly, these photos countered the racist narrative of the time. But how were they received? Though created by and of the Black community, the images and the exhibit as a whole were not designed for the Black community. This was specifically put together for the 1900 Paris Exposition, an event whose attendees were largely white Europeans, with the potential of some upper-class white Americans thrown in there. It's not completely surprising that the mainstream white press in the United States largely failed to cover Du Bois' exhibit. While they poured out article upon article about the Paris Expo, the American Negro exhibit got nothing, though it made up a quarter of the entirety of the United States offering at the fair. Even the United States Fair Commissioners, essentially the American ambassadors to the Expo, neglected to mention the American Negro exhibit in their promotional releases and articles. The Black community in America learned about it through various Black newspapers like the Washington Bee and Cleveland Gazette, but for everyone else, it was almost like it didn't exist. The American Negro exhibit at the fair was arranged like a compact gallery and library all in one. Portraits were hung high up on the wall with movable displays of charts below. The photo albums curated by Du Bois were easily accessible upon shelves, also lined with various books of patents and black authors. The display won a grand prize for the collection itself, as well as 15 various other medals. Unfortunately, none of this made the white press either. There is only one mention of Du Bois' exhibit in the white American press. The August 8th edition of the New York Herald showed a photo of prominent progressive black Americans being honored at the fair with the caption, American Negroes Dine, being the only descriptor. The same paper neglected to mention any of the awards, didn't really even mention the exhibit itself, and said it focused on America's other achievements at the fair, which were mostly agricultural awards. That said, the official report filed by the fair commissioners following the closing of the expo was glowing. These were the same commissioners who didn't even mention it in the promotional material leading up to the opening. They said, Certainly the most unique exhibit in the American section, if not in the whole exposition of social economy, was that showing the economic and social progress accomplished by the Negro race in the United States since its emancipation. It went on for a page and a half, heaping praise upon praise for both Calloway and Du Bois' work. The patent books, the scholarly work, and especially the charts and graphs were lovingly gushed over. While the glowing report mentioned the portraits, there was no mention at all of the photo albums created by Du Bois containing many photos of Thomas Askew. There are three books which we relied upon to write this piece, and all three prominently feature and discuss the photographs, all but neglected by the press at the time. Most of what is remembered today about the American Negro exhibit are the photographs. These books are all about those photographs and not much else. Even though they made up a small portion of the entirety of the exhibit and could easily have been forgotten just like the patent books are now. We have But it's these photographs we return to again and again, 120 years later. We study them, admire them, smile with them, and see their value as historical documents. They were a celebration of progress amidst the Jim Crow era through eugenics and lynch mobs. Through these photographs, Du Bois was showing and explaining why Black Lives Mattered, simply by showing the lives of Black Americans. Oh, baby, they ain't no lie. Oh, 
now, what you all have been waiting for, zine reviews. What do we got? Well, we've got two zines today. You've got one. I've got another. That's pretty typical for us. The scene that I'll be reviewing is Monochromania number seven. Now you might remember maybe a year ago, Mono, Monochromania number three, the magic and allure of toy cameras. In that issue, Mark O'Brien discussed and cataloged scores of medium format toy cameras. At the end of it, Mark promised a 35 millimeter version and here it is, but this time it's in color. Yeah, it's a color issue of Monochromania. Who knew? And it's practically an encyclopedia of 35 millimeter toy cameras. It's not exhaustive, but there's a hell of a lot of them in there. I briefly talk about this scene in last month's Patreon bonus episode. If you're a Patreon member, you should check that out. And I insisted that this, along with issue three, should be combined into a book. I don't know if that'll ever happen. Like the medium format camera edition before it, the magic and allure of 35 millimeter toy cameras asks why? Why do these cameras, these cheap plastic, often promotional, or just a very small step above disposable cameras matter? Well, in Mark's words, not everyone wants a perfectly formed image. And that's true. These cameras will not give you that. But also, these cameras are part of our history, not just the history of film photography, but they're part of our cultural history. Mark starts in 1916 with the Kodak number 00 Cartridge Primo, which is an incredibly wonderful name for a camera. It's catchy. I can't believe they still don't make them. It's a camera that used 35 millimeter sized film with backing paper. So I'm not sure if that was like an 828 or I don't know what they were doing there, but that's apparently the first one. He moves through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s into the mid-century with cameras many of us have seen. There's the Spartus 35F and the Kodak Instamatic, but the real fun happens in the 80s with the Time Magazine camera, which you got free with your paid subscription to Time Magazine. The Time 35 millimeter camera, it's free with your paid subscription. You gotta be kidding. No, we're not. It has a 50 millimeter fixed focus lens and a range of exposure settings, so you'll take great pictures. I wanted one of these so bad when I was a kid. What can you say? I was kind of dumb. But anyway, Mark moves through the 90s point and shoots and the Lomography offerings like the Dana Mini and a bunch of cameras you probably bought for yourself six or seven years ago. And it's okay to admit that. Each listing has a few paragraphs describing the history, the functionality, and I'm using that word functionality very loosely, of each camera. As usual, Mark is a bit irreverent and a hell of a lot of fun. The second part of this zine are black and white photos. Mark took using these cameras, many of these cameras. In the issue that Mark sent me, he included a little written note that said, you may rethink your attitude towards crappy cameras. And I am i don't know if I come off as being a little, little down on crappy cameras. I'm really not. I have some, I've shot them for years and years. My attitude is bring them on. I've got a number of 620 crappy cameras that I still enjoy shooting. And I, I don't really enjoy re-rolling 120 film onto 620 spools, but I enjoy paying someone else to do it even less. Fuck all that. So pick up Monochromania number seven and number three, the medium format issue. How, get the rest of them you can. I think number one is sold out, but the rest of them are all available on a Zetsi store. This one is $12. Most of the rest of them are cheaper than that. And I, I don't know how he does it so cheaply, but please, the link will be in the show notes. It is the Etsy store, MFO Photos. Vanya? Yes. Yes, that was 
my mouth is a little numb after that one. That was a lot of words for a zine review. That was very wordy, but it was very good and well-deserving. It's Yeah. It's impressive how deep he gets into these. I absolutely love them. Yeah, they should be books, honestly. Yeah, and zines is, I mean, they are zines. It's not quite like a, a, a regular zine. It, to me, it is, I guess, but it's not what we were expecting from a photo zine. I would think of them as more like newsletters you would get in the 80s from like hobby groups, but now it's a zine in zine form rather than like Xeroxed or mimeographed and sent in the mail with a stamp and much bigger. Yeah. Mark O'Brien used to do model rocket newsletters in the 80s. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it, and it, it all makes sense. Yeah. It really does. Definitely pick this up. I, I love every issue of this scene. It's wonderful reading and it's great photos. And he's a wonderful guy. So absolutely support him. But moving from one wonderful guy to another, what do you have for us, Vanya? The View from the Driver's Seat by Jaya Bhatt. This is a half-size zine with various point-and-shoot cameras that Jaya has taken over the years. Jaya embraces all the quirks and characteristics of his PSs. I hope you guys do too. Jaya's first page is a small introduction to get us all acquainted on what to expect. He mentions he spends a lot of time in his car a very California thing, I had an instant connection. Views from the driver's seat is exactly what you are getting. I've always been interested in this concept, not just as a photographer, but as a multitasker myself. I miss the morning commutes when you would see people drive, put on makeup, change their clothes, paint their nails, all sorts of things. Jay admits this scene isn't a new idea, but explains It is his take. And I feel like that's a perfect opportunity to encourage everyone to not only be creative, but to do whatever idea you choose and put your take on it because you're different. You're going to shoot different than anybody else. So you might not think it's as fascinating as someone else's, but I promise it is. I adore San Francisco. It's such a dreamy place. And to see it through Jaya's eyes is always a pleasure. Jai is one of the kindest people you will ever get to meet. He sends me a print with a zine, thanking me for the laughs and the entertainment on the podcast. And I'm like, uh, no, thank you, Jaya. It has been extraordinary to meet you. Jaya is just one of those people you think, wow, Jaya is just out there living his best life, just doing his thing. What an inspiration. I'm so glad to have you as a listener, contributor, and friend. You can find this zine among many other works of Jaya on whatjayasees.com. And thank you, Jaya, for sending us the zines. Jaya went to a, I think like some open air market a couple days ago or a week ago and sent me a DM and I didn't see it. I've been kind of like off, not really like super on Instagram lately. So I apologize if I'm answering people not quickly (laughs) right now. But he sends me a picture and he's like, hey, there's a guy here and he has Portra 160 VC 220 rolls. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I wish I saw this. And he was like, oh, don't worry, I got it for you anyways. But if you don't want it, it's okay. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I Venmoed him some money for it and just always looking out. How many 220 rolls do you have now? You know what? No one has to know those things. It does not matter. (laughs) 
All Through a Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting books, our newspapers.com account, which is fucking amazing, uh, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do it without you. If you like bonus episodes, or if you like bonus episodes, when we just recorded for, for last month was quite a lot of fun to do. We have full-length interviews, which the full-length interview from this episode is lengthy. It's probably about two hours. And extra nonsense, you can become a Patreon subscriber. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash all through a lens for more info. I'm trying to convince Eric that we need these like massage chairs. We're not going to get massage chairs. So we're wrapping up here, Vanya. What does your next week look like? Film, photographically speaking? Ooh, well, uh, yeah, it has not been photographic at all lately. So I'm very excited to get the fuck out of this house as soon as I test negative (laughs) or positive. Wait, I get so confused. Like Michael Scott here, aren't you? I am. (laughs) This past Friday, which has already passed, Alan being Alan on Instagram, and I are going to the Imogene Cunningham exhibit. I'm so excited. That's amazing. So excited. Also, totally invited Eric, but he's a loser and he's not coming. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a billion pictures and me and Alan are going to show how much fun we're having without him. I hope you do. It's a great exhibit. <laughs> I really hope you have a good time. I want to get down there for it so you get to see it again. We'll see. You know what? That's something that you would say to me. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. Anything else you're doing? Uh, No. Okay. Just hearing what you have. Well, there is the annual. Well, it's Until COVID, it was annual for like 30 some years. Camera swap meet in Kent, Washington. I go pretty much every year it's been going on. And uh, well, since I've been in, in film photography, And it's, um, maybe I'll buy something, maybe I won't. It's just kind of, you know, nice to have a place where there's just a bunch of cameras around and to see what's there. And, you know, I think mostly though, having a little bit peek behind the curtain, there is probably around three hours worth of of material that we've recorded for this episode. So most of my weekend will be spent editing. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. It's it's a lot of editing. I kind of want you to like look for something for me at the the camera swap. Mm-hmm. Okay, what are you what are you looking for? Well, a memo, obviously, with cartridges included. Okay, I've never seen one, but hey, why not? You weren't looking for one before. That is not true. <laughs> Anything else? I'm sure I can figure something. I'm out. sure you will. <laughs> oh, you know what? Look to see if there's like anybody with like some old water housings or anybody that is like a water housing person. <laughs> I will look. It wouldn't surprise me if there were being around all this water here. So yeah. it's possible. I definitely haven't been looking for it, you know, in prior years. So I could have missed it. There is a guy who has a bunch of like old military stuff. So Ooh. the swap meet is as two things, the swap meet. And it's also like a show. And before film photography had a revival, a lot of these guys had, old cameras and didn't touch them, didn't use them and brought them out 
for the shows and put do not touch signs all over the place and gave you really huge angry scowls when you got too close to their cameras that most of us are just using right now. And it's sort of hilarious, a, a, interesting generational gap going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen, yeah, someone was very proud of his array of Bronica uh, paraphernalia, a bunch of different Graflexes too. And I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm throwing a Graflex in my backpack and going hiking with it. There's uh, two different levels of reverence for photography that on display at this swap meet. And I always really enjoy I always really enjoy that. It's a lot of fun. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah they, they have something like that here in LA, in Pasadena. I haven't been in years. The last time I went, I got the the Frankenblood body, actually. Oh, the 500C cool. body that you are acquiring at the moment. I do have it right now, don't I? I also brought that to Rome with me because oh. I wanted to bring a compact camera. It just makes sense. So that's our show. Thank you all for listening. <gasps> no way. It is. And so... Next week, in one week's time, we will be back with Dev Party, where we will finally be developing something with FX1. Vanya, do you have anything else to say? Yes, thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you would like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes. They are Fabulous, and that's at allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both of us are on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff. Hashtag All Through Lens Podcast to be featured. You can find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever you found the episode you're listening to now. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you again all so, so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. Um, Vanya? Yes? Uh, you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. Yeah, so so we're obviously biased. We we do promote women more than men, but also because uh, I personally feel like, and I think you agree with this, that there isn't a the platform isn't even, and it should be, but it just isn't.